Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. As usual, we'll learn about their area of expertise and then get to know a little about their life story and approach to parenting. My guest today is David Hirsch. David's a very thoughtful and dedicated guy. He grew up with a strong single mom and maternal grandfather who was a male role model that changed his life. Years later, and David has not only managed a successful career in finance and raised a family of five kids, but David also started a couple amazing nonprofits along the way, even being a featured guest on Oprah's TV show. David's someone who has consistently acted on his desire to make the world a better place. Now, before we hear from David, I'll give you a little preview of the next uh, four episodes. We'll be hearing from one of my business school friends who is a retired commander of SEAL Team 6. We'll also hear from the editor of Quillette. We'll hear from an author and adjunct professor known as the Workplace Therapist. And then we'll hear from an awesome partner at PwC. Now, back to David. Enjoy. David, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Sean. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. So uh, you were involved in the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative. You're at, at given TED Talks. You are an author on the subject of uh, fatherhood. You've founded the 21st Century Dads organization. You run a podcast on uh, Dad to Dad podcasts. So tell me a little, uh, how did you become an outspoken advocate for father involvement and kind of walk us through your your journey and the organizations you've been a part of? And let's, let's just start there, kind of see where that takes us. Okay. Well, I won't go to the beginning, but I'll give you a little bit, put things into context. So um, one way to start talking about it is that uh, when I was quite young, I was six years old, my parents divorced. um, And my mom raised me and my younger brother from my age six. And I didn't have a lot of contact with my dad the next seven years. And I have the utmost respect for single moms because my mom was one of those moms. And raised me and my younger brother as a Chicago public school teacher, which is another way of saying there wasn't a lot of money. But I was very thankful that my maternal grandfather, her dad, was the one that was there for me every step of the way. And I was very fortunate because I didn't know him just as a little guy, but I got to know him as an adult as well. And uh, he died 19 years ago when I was 40. He was 93. So uh, for all intents and purposes, he was the most positive adult male role model in my life. And um, I don't know where I would be without him. So um, my wife and I uh, got married after college. Um, We started a family and uh, life was busy. We have five kids. They're now 23 to 30 years old. And uh, when we had the fifth child, I was finishing up a fellowship with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, which was a a three-year commitment, three months a year or nine months in total. And as that fellowship was winding down, I felt some pressure at work, but more pressure at home because our family had expanded by two more kids over the last three years. And I wanted to be a better dad, and I was doing research on how to do that and stumbled across some statistics out of the National Center for Fathering, which was then located in Kansas. 
And uh, I was stunned to learn that there's some 24 million kids or four out of every 10 in America that are growing up in a father-absent home. And this perception, or what I think of as a misperception, which is that, you know, it's that black family, those black families, inner city families that are the problem, if you will. And uh, while it is a big challenge in inner city America and black America, seven or eight out of 10 are growing up in single parent families in absolute numbers, there are two times the number of white versus black kids in America growing up in father absent homes. And as I was coming up to speed on all this, I started talking with my friends and nobody else seemed to know about this issue or the scale or scope of it. So I helped organize a community leaders briefing, 120 people show up, validate what we were talking about. And that was the beginning of the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, which has been going on now for almost 24 years. So it's basically just a partnership with the State Board of Ed, Chicago Public Schools, and the Office of Catholic Education for the Archdiocese of Chicago. And uh, one of the things that we learned super early on, and if there's only one takeaway from this interview, Sean, that you, you take away or that your listeners take away, the most important thing for a dad to do, in addition to love the mother of his children, if not his wife, is to be involved in the child's education. Bar none, that is the most significant impact that a father can have is to be actively involved in the child's education. So one of the things we did back in 1997 when we started the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative was to uh, promote an essay writing program. And it sounds sort of trite and isn't that nice. And by the way, it wasn't even our idea. It was an idea that we copied from the National Center for Fathering. They were doing this with the uh, in conjunction with the Kansas City Royals and also the Minnesota Twins. And the idea was to have kids write about their dads, pick two or three of them to be recognized at the Father's Day baseball game, you know, in their cities. And I thought, well, geez, we've got two baseball teams, the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox. Somebody's always going to be home on Father's Day. We looked at the calendar and the Cubs were going to be home. So we approached the Chicago Tribune, who owned the Cubs at the time. They were quick to sign on. And uh, we promoted this essay contest. And I should mention that in Kansas City and in Minneapolis, they had received about a thousand essays each year. And that's plenty of essays to pick, you know, two or three dads from. Um, so we were thinking, oh, we hope to do about as well, maybe not as well our first year. And we were blown away. We got more than 30,000 essays the very first oh. year. So now we're like scrambling to do, what are we going to do? You probably have essays? way better baseball teams than Kansas City and Minneapolis. <laughs> probably a big <laughs> well, part of it. Well, let, let's see about this in 1997 remember we were partnered with the cubs and at that point in time they had not won a world series for about 80 years so um i, I don't want to talk about the quality of baseball but <laughs> the fact is um we we didn't know what to do we weren't really set up to you know do something with 30,000 you know slips of paper with all this rich information about what the school-age kids of illinois had to say about their dads so we scramble we recruit about 400 volunteer readers men and women young and old some men of means like you and I, in some cases sitting elbow to elbow with uh, incarcerated dads, helping evaluate what the kids of Illinois have to say about their dads, stepdads, granddads, and father figures. And it was such a powerful experience to see what these kids had to say. We thought it would be too bad if only the 400 volunteers were the ones that had a chance to read those essays. So we came up with this epiphany to create an essay booklet and we cherry-picked a couple dozen of the essays, two per grade, first through 12th grade, and put them in the form of this little essay booklet and scattered in some of the unsolicited artwork from the younger kids. And I, I was going to be a social entrepreneur. That's what I wanted to be. I still want to be a social entrepreneur. 
And we took a little $5,000 grant from a local foundation, and we're going to print 5,000 essay booklets, so about a buck a copy to produce them, and then we're going to sell them for $10 each. So we're going to turn $5,000 into $50,000, and that was going to be the seed capital for this brand new charity. Well, we quickly learned that there's no market for essay booklets. By the way, the local food store, Jewel, Jewel Osco, uh, gave us end caps, right? They were so excited about doing something for dads in conjunction with the Cubs and the Tribune that they gave us like primo space. Um, we did At the end of an aisle in the grocery store. That, exactly. Yeah, that's coveted space for sure. Exactly. So what we learned very quickly was that uh, uh, there's no market for essay booklets. They're not a book. They don't have an ISBN number. And they're not a greeting card, so they're not going to be in the Hallmark section, you know, where people would be looking for things, you know, for dad maybe. And uh, we ended up giving most of those essay booklets away. And one of those essay booklets found its way to Harpo Studios. And one of the producers calls me out of the blue and says, hey, we sort of like the project you're working on. We got your essay booklet. Uh, we picked seven of the 24 essays. We'd like them to come in for a taping. And we'd like you, David Hirsch, to be on the Oprah Winfrey Show. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. How could that wow. be? So I could bring one guest with me. So naturally, I chose my uh, maternal grandfather, Sam Solomon. And it was a surreal experience, Sean, sitting there being op- interviewed by Oprah. And uh, I was nervous as a leaf, um, but uh, it was an extraordinary experience. And I just want to recap what I just mentioned. We had this community leaders briefing in February. We did the essay contest in March, the essay reading in April, the essay booklet in May, Oprah Winfrey Show in June. It was like a rocket ship. It was a blur. Things were moving so fast. So once the dust settled after Father's Day that year, we said, oh, we should do something with this, right? You know, we should try to perpetuate this. So we got the second year we had uh, 42,000 essays. The third year we had more than 70,000 essays. And we were just off to the races. So that program still exists, the uh, Father of the Year essay program. There's three celebrations each year. And we've collected well over 425,000 essays. So um, that's not the only thing that the Illinois Father Initiative done, but it's the program, if I can call it a program, that's perpetuated all throughout the organization's history. So about five years ago, uh, when my baby went off to college, I was sitting at the um, kitchen counter, and I felt like God was talking to me, not aloud like you and I are talking to one another, but you know, on my heart. And the message I heard, which is really an unusual one, which was you should do a cross-country bicycle ride and challenge yourself to, you know, step out of the state of Illinois and, you know, maybe do something with your friends. I have a number of friends from around the country, dad advocates is what I think of them as, uh, in hospitals, in the workplace, in schools, just community organizations. And uh, that's where the idea uh, for doing a cross-country bike ride came from. And the vision was we would get people from these different organizations to ride for a day, a couple days at a time. We'd raise a lot of awareness, we'd raise some money, and we'd build a bigger visibility for this important issue of father involvement. And so I, uh, I, I was resistant, and the reason I say that was that I didn't even own a bike you could ride across the country. Um, I, I'm not an endurance bike rider, although I'm athletic. I've done some marathons, I've done some triathlons. I can count on one hand with four fingers left over the number of times I've ridden a bicycle 100 miles, right? A century ride. That's like a bucket list for a lot of people. And I'm thinking, you do the math, just look, you know, at a map. It's about 22, 2300 miles 
from Santa Monica to Chicago. And the idea was to arrive on Father's Day. So we put a plan together, surrounded myself with people that had been there and done this, um, put a crew, flew out to LA, started pedaling back from Santa Monica Pier. And we had a 21-day schedule. I arrived um, 19 days on schedule, only delayed twice, once by an electrical storm and once by, could you imagine, a 54-year-old getting fatigued by riding more than 100 miles a day. And, uh, you know, we arrived literally on Father's Day at then U.S. Cellular Field um, before uh, Father's Day White Sox baseball game with 40,000 people. And uh, it was like a transformative experience for me. A, I didn't know that I had something like that in me. Um, And then B, the people I met um, along the way, the overall experience was transformational. And uh, we raised some awareness. We raised some money that year. That first year, we had 10 riders. I was one of 10 riders. I was the only one that went from start to finish. The others had just signed up for a couple, three days at a time. And it was certainly not me, David Hirsch, doing things. It was um, a team of people. And you know, I, I want to make reference to the fact that um, there was divine intervention in a lot of different situations. Um, it, it was not uh, to be expected. And uh, so we decided to do a second and a third dad's honor ride. The second was from Boston to Chicago, only 1,400 miles versus the 2,300 miles the first year. We had 38 riders, um, so we raised more awareness and more money. And then we backed off and we did uh, a ride around Lake Michigan, which was not a 21-day commitment like the first two years, but um, just a nine-day commitment, 958 miles. And uh, you know, candidly, um, while the rides served a purpose, um, they generated a lot of interest, they raised some money. Um, I'll just admit to one of my failures, and there's many failures, is that um, I wasn't able to compel one of my friends to put a person on a bike for any one of those three rides. And uh, we raised awareness, uh, did a lot of interviews, uh, honored a lot of dads. We called it the Dad's Honor Rides. Um, but it didn't accomplish one of the stated objectives, which was to get organizations to work together, mostly not-for-profit organizations to work together. So what we did was we were going to close the organization down, right? Um, but before we did that, we evaluated what we thought were some of the biggest challenges in the world of fathering, and we narrowed it down to four. The first is raising kids in high-poverty areas like urban areas. The second is working with incarcerated dads who of been removed from not only their family, but from the community at large. The third area is teen fathering, men in most cases who become fathers inadvertently before they uh, turn 20 years old. And then the fourth area was working with dads raising kids with special needs. And uh, we narrowed it down to the last two categories, teen fathers and dads raising kids with special needs. And then we realized there's no infrastructure around teen parenting. There's a little... um, There's some resources for teen moms. Sadly, here in Chicago, we have classrooms full of young women who have just had children or who are pregnant who are going to have children. And the goal, simple goal, Sean, is to make sure they get a a high school graduation. Like that's going to help them be competitive in a global economy like we have. But it's Mm. at least it's some level of education and no resources for, you know, teen fathers. So we focused on the dads raising kids with special needs. And I should mention that with all the advocacy I've been doing the last now 24 years, one of the observations I've made is that those parents, moms, as well as dads, 
in the special needs community are some of the fiercest advocates for their kids, some of the best parents I've ever met. And I'm not just saying that, um, but I've witnessed that. And uh, so we coined the phrase Special Fathers Network. Um, so that's the signature program of the 21st Century Dads Foundation, which is the charity. And we just started recruiting dads uh, as mentors. We've got over 400 of them now. And uh, we're starting to match them with the younger dads who have kids that are typically like zero to five. And having these more seasoned dads come alongside the younger dads in, in, a, in a perfect world with the same gender of the child, same special need, same socioeconomic group, same ethnic group, same religion, if known. Um, so that there, there's a, an exact as a match as could have. And it's hmm. a very powerful experience to see these uh, men connecting with one another. And one of the yeah. things that you, one of the things that you learn, if it's not intuitive, is that if you have a child with differences, it's very isolating. There's not a lot of people that can relate to what you're going through. Most families don't have children with special needs. So if you have a child with special needs, no one in your family is likely to have any experience. Your buddies from high school or college or neighbors or guys at work, you know, they're not going to be able to relate to what you're going through. So um, this is a community that we've created of dads who can be themselves and they can relate to one another. They have that shared experience. So and to raise awareness for the uh, Special Fathers Network, uh, we created a podcast. And I've been interviewing dads on a weekly basis now for a couple years. And uh, these are some of the most uh, inspiring fatherhood stories. Not my story, for sure, but I'm just trying to shed, shed a light on some of these amazing stories that um, you know I'm learning about on an ongoing basis. So um, that's a very long-winded introduction, but I hope it gives you some background. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, before we get into what we were just talking about with the 21st century um, dads, I'm curious, when you were going across country on bicycle, like what did you eat and where did you sleep? Are you stopping in hotels? Are you like setting someone camping? I mean, what does that look like going for 20 days? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, so we had a like a two support vehicles. One was an RV, so we could get out of the elements if it was raining or super hot um, and uh, we we were prepared to sleep in the RV if a push came to shove but we actually made uh, reservations at motels mostly like Hampton Inns and places like that along the way and uh, the advice I got was that you want to get a good night's sleep and take a hot shower um, if you're going to be you know pedaling for 8, 10, 12 yeah. hours a day and that was really good advice and then as far as the uh, nutrition uh, one of the uh, things that is logical is that you you should drink a lot of water. Like that's what most everybody yeah. thought. <laughs> Make sure you drink a lot of water. You don't want to get dehydrated because you know what's going to happen if you get dehydrated. You're going to be in the hospital, and that might be a game changer or end of the game. And uh, there's one guy I want to shout out to him. His name is Lon Haldeman, and he's arguably the most well-recognized endurance bike rider of all time. Not Lance Armstrong. He's a racer. But endurance bike riding is like long distance bike riding. And Lon has crossed the country, I'm not exaggerating, 85 times. And he's done Route 66 wow. 25 times. So when I was telling people I was going to do Route 66, they're like, Lon Haldeman's your guy. And I waited until four people told me that Lon Haldeman was my guy until I called him and introduced myself. <laughs> Literally less than two months before the ride. 
I'm wow. showing up on his doorstep, pedaled my bike to see him because I thought if I drove up in my car, he would not take me seriously. And uh, we hit it off. He took me under his wing and he gave me so many insights about what to do, what not to do. And he, he really jump-started my training program. And as it relates to hydration, he said I would not drink any water. I'm like, what? Fun, you're you're the man, and you've done this more than anybody else on the planet, and you're giving me contrary advice to what everybody everybody has said. Oh, you better drink a lot of water. He he said I didn't say not to hydrate. He said I I wouldn't drink any water because there's no nutrients in water. There's no calories. And he said one of the things you need to be concerned about if you're going to be burning 8, 10, 12,000 calories a day, is that you need to consume as many calories as you possibly can. So don't waste any time drinking water, right? If you're going to be putting anything in your body, make sure it has calories. So uh, that was really amazing advice. And it wasn't intuitive and certainly not the popular way of thinking about things. But um, I would have these um, high-protein chicks, three of them every morning uh, along the ride after breakfast, by the way. So I'd have a, one of those cheap motel breakfasts and then I'd start riding and I'd be pounding these uh, high caloric shakes. So I'm probably taking in like 6,000 calories before lunch. And, wow. uh, and I was concerned about losing muscle mass, right? Just because I'm exercising so much or exerting myself. Yeah. And most people ask, well, how much weight did you lose, right? Um, by riding 2,300 plus miles in 21 days. And I said, I actually gained six pounds and it was all muscle. My thighs were like two X the size that they normally are. My <laughs> pants would not fit comfortably. Um, it, it was an amazing feeling being that physically fit and just sort of in tune with things. So anyway, good question. Yeah, that's crazy. Can't imagine that. So your organization now, 21st Century Dads and, um, the dad to dad podcast you're connecting dads who have been through this unique experience of raising special needs children with um the, those mentors and mentees so you're connecting the the ones who have been there and done that a, a few years ago with those who are right there in the in the throes of the first few years um, what does that connection and and outreach look like and um what do the mentees enjoy most about having a mentor Great question, um, or questions, I should say. So on one side of the equation, we're recruiting uh, seasoned fathers, typically with 10 or more years of experience raising a child, or in some cases, children with special needs. And almost every one of those dads have said, Sean, almost every one of those dads have said the same thing. I wish there was something like this when I was a younger dad. I didn't know who to turn to or who could relate to what was going on, like I was saying earlier. So not so hard to re recruiting the mentor fathers. Um, they get it. They've been there. They've done that. They know how isolating this can be. And it's a little bit more challenging to uh, reach those younger families. In Illinois, we have something called uh, early intervention. It's zero to three. So if you have a child that's diagnosed with more than a 30% deficit in some area, intellectual, emotional, physical, you're entitled to services. And uh, it's almost, well, first of all, that would be the best time to be connecting with those dads as soon as possible, because the sooner you can get the right advice and get the right services, it really changes the trajectory of your child's development. And um, getting both parents involved, because it's mostly the moms in our country that are raising our kids, that's just societal, 
Um, they're the ones that are primarily focused on healthcare and education. So it's less common to have the dad involved from the very beginning or at all. So anything we can do to encourage those dads to be involved and put those resources in place is really important. So the matching takes place um, just one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So we get emails mostly or a referral and uh, we'll do a little intake and get an idea of you know what the family dynamics are and then we'll go to our database of dads and you know pick uh, the top two mentors, make an email introduction, follow up with them a couple weeks later and make sure that you know the lines of communication are open and you know for many it's just a few questions um, and some become pen pals if you will uh, maybe they Skype or Zoom now becomes that that's become so more common and uh, if they live in the same community which is an optimal situation uh, they can get together for a soda um, a cup of coffee yeah. and get to know each other and uh, we put on conferences we host Zoom calls you know we're doing whatever we can to help you know the lines of communication open up so it's not just about mentees and mentors um, but it's uh, it's broader than that cool and tell me a little about your book I know you you wrote a book about 21st century dads what's what's the main message and takeaways well thanks for asking so the title of the book is a father's journey to break the cycle of father absence um, it's been out for about four years and the audible copy of that is coming out in September so um, for those that don't read books but would rather listen to books that's an option as well and uh, the idea behind the book was threefold one it's about a father's journey um, and uh, there's a metaphor in there uh, because it's about the bike ride um, and sort of how could a 54 year old do a 21 day 2300 plus mile ride so it appeals to people in the riding community um, and then more importantly it's uh, about um, the advocacy right the important message that we're trying to convey which is dads need to step up they need to be involved they need to be present not just financially which is what the state cares about but uh, physically emotionally and spiritually involved in their children's lives and it's a little bit because I wrote the book uh, for going on five years ago and I wasn't really out there about my own story but I was more comfortable talking about my own family situation so for the first 15 years or so maybe 18 years of advocating I would just go in statistic mode 24 million kids four out of every 10 children from father absent homes are four times more likely to grow up in poverty nine times more likely to drop out of high school it's the root cause for what's ailing society um, drug and alcohol abuse teen suicide and pregnancy um, etc and um, that was satisfactory most people just said oh, okay I understand what motivates you but really what motivated me Sean was fear when we had our fifth child and I was looking for those fatherhood resources the fear that I had in my heart was that I wouldn't have a close relationship with my kids and I'm not proud of this but I wasn't close to my dad and I witnessed that my dad wasn't close to his dad and I wanted to do something about it I wanted to break the cycle of father absence in my own family and if I could do it um, as a demonstration I know that other people can do it too so the book is about my own personal journey a little bit and uh, more about the advocacy and then you know there's that sort of overlay about uh, riding across the country and cycling breaking the cycle 
Um, and uh, anyway, uh, it, I had a lot of time to reflect when I was out there riding for six, eight, ten hours a day. So that <laughs> uh, puts things in perspective. Nice. So I know our, our time today is uh, relatively limited. In the, in the remaining time, I'd love to ask you a little about uh, your your life and approach to parenting. And so um, let's start with this one. Let's say in the last uh, last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would... Uh, expand your time frame a little bit and just say that about a decade ago um, a close friend of mine passed away and he had a more profound impact on me as a result of his death than our dozen year friendship so the fellow's name is Peter Spokes he was um, when I met him the president of the National Center for Fathering a father of six and a very successful businessman he was the president of YoPlay, which is part of General Foods up in Minneapolis. And he um, stepped off the corporate treadmill, if you will, uh, took a not-for-profit job. So moved his family of six, the oldest was probably 15 at the time, um, to Kansas City. So moved out of the community that he was born and raised in up in Minneapolis and you know, moved hundreds of miles away uh, to transplant his family and start this new not-for-profit career. And we got along really well. He was one of my mentors, helped uh, me create the vision for the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative. And sadly, Peter passed away at age 57, about a decade ago now, from leukemia. And I remember being at his funeral, and it was a profound experience, not just the way he was eulogized by the Catholic priest, the local one and the one that came down from Minneapolis, but two of his children, the oldest two, uh, Pete and Megan, eulogized their dad in a way that I had not experienced before. And here all along, I thought, oh, we have a lot in common. He has six kids. I have five. We're sort of business guys. We talk the same language. We have this passion about making a difference in the lives of youth through greater father involvement. And what I realized after they eulogized their dad was that they were sad that he was dead, but they weren't like bumbling or mumbling. They were just very accepting, right? It's just God's way. They didn't understand why they, why God took their father at such an early age, um, but he was that, you know, extraordinary role model in so many different ways. And what I realized is that I, I was different than Peter. I did not have that spiritual connection to my kids. Um, so, remember when I came back, I tell my wife the same story that I was recounting for you, and she said, "Well, maybe you should talk to a priest," which I did, and. Uh, longtime family friend, a priest, says, well, uh, let's not be too hasty. It's taking you the first 49 years of your life to get to this point. Um, he said, uh, here's some books. Uh, let's have lunch again in uh, two months, and we'll see where you're at. Two months fly by. I'm just as excited about you know, learning more about uh, Christianity and Catholicism. And uh, I went through the RCIA process, and I converted to Catholicism. So um, I've always been side by side with my wife. Our kids went to Catholic uh, schools first through eighth grade. Um, but I was almost just going through the motions. Um, and yeah. I would say the biggest change in my life, Sean, to answer your question, is my um, spirituality and um, the connections that I've had, the relationships that I've formed just seem to be much more meaningful and purposeful. So good question. 
Thank you for sharing that. I really enjoyed hearing that. And uh, congratulations to you, man. That's really uh, it's awesome that you're able to see that and identify the need and go for it. And I like the approach of your your priest too to have you wait for two months. That's kind of funny because well, probably counterintuitive. I imagine that caught you off guard, but uh, he he saw that fire still burning a couple months later. So um, that's cool, man. I can I can relate to that. My life's been blessed through faith as well. So. Um, Thanks for thanks for sharing, man. Enjoy hearing that. Uh, so, quickly tell me a little about your family, and um, you've got five kids. What's a favorite vacation that you guys have taken? Wow, we've uh, we've been very intentional about going as many places as we can, with the limits that you know traveling with seven individuals would have. We've done a lot of driving vacations across the country. Um, my wife's like, I'm not going to drive across the country with you guys. Um, I'm driving the kids like that's my job, right? Her license plate is the taxi, literally the taxi. <laughs> and uh, so what we would do is I would like take three or four of the kids drive to like the Grand Canyon, you know, take like three days to get there. And then she would like fly with the other one and uh, we'd meet up and then we'd like vacation. And then she'd go back to the airport with one of the kids and I'd drive home with the other kids. But I would say to answer your question, um, we've traveled all over the world, but I think our favorite vacation, if you were to pull each of our five kids, would say, oh, that trip to New Zealand. We were there for two weeks uh, over New Year's, just on the South Island. And it's the adventure capital of the world. If you've never been there, you know, uh, and you have a, an adventurous spirit, that's your place. So the highlights were that uh, we went um, skydiving, the seven of us did. I went up with three of the kids, my wife went up with the other two, and it's not like for safety reasons. The planes were just relatively small. We couldn't mm. all go up. And let me be crystal clear, we were tandem diving, not in solo diving. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you're basically along for the ride, but launching Still. out of a plane at, you know, 12,000 feet, it's a out-of-body experience. <laughs> and uh, uh, we also went uh, bungee jumping, which I think is actually more difficult. So bungee jumping, as it's known today, started on the Kalahari Bridge uh, there in New Zealand. And uh, that was more challenging because uh, you you don't get pushed off the platform. You have to self-propel. And it's That'd be tough. every fiber of your body, everything in your brain is saying, that is a stupid idea, <laughs> right? Um, but you're watching all these people like, you know, two minute intervals jump and everybody's boinging up and down. And it's like, hey, if they're doing it, I can do it. It's not going to kill me. Um, and uh, my wife tells a better story about this than I do. But that was a that was a really fun experience. And just being out in nature, um, there's so much to see and do there. And there's like 40,000 or 40 million sheep compared to the million people that live in New Zealand or something like that. So anyway, that was cool. my highlight. No, no dad feels like they're perfect, but what's one thing you feel like you're nailing as, as a parent? Wow. What am I getting right? In our, in our pre-recording conversation, as we were chatting a little bit, you mentioned several things that stood out to me, but, um, so feel free to go circle back to those or anything, whatever comes to mind. Uh, excited to hear. Yeah. Well, I think the, um, the most important thing uh, a father can do is just to be present. And um, I think about it in four different ways. I mentioned that earlier, so I'll repeat it. 
uh, financially, which is really what you know society expects of dads is to be a financial provider. But it goes well beyond that. You need to be physically present, emotionally present, and spiritually present. And I would say that if I got something right, you know, is that you know I've I've been as present as somebody can be, holding down a full-time job and all the other uh, commitments that I've made. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. How are you evolving as a dad in the last you know three to five years? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, just by numbers, they're 30 down to 23. The oldest two are married. The oldest has a um, uh, one and a half year old son. So we're grandparents. So that's probably the biggest change that we've experienced is, you know, sort of witnessing our kids getting married and then starting families of their own. And I would say that uh, one of the joys of being a parent called a dividend, you know, using investment terminology is that, you know, you get to see them go off on their own and make decisions and, you know, you've done most of your parenting. Your parenting never stops, but you know, that investment that you make in their educations and just trying to be good role models. Um, when I look back on it, the kids are always watching the parents um, and you can either be a good role model or a bad role model. And I think each of us learns, like we were talking about, from good and bad role models. And the way I think about it, Sean, is that you wanna emulate the good role models and if at all possible, you want to live vicariously through the bad role models so you don't make some of the same mistakes. Awesome. David, I want to thank you for, for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed chatting with you. So for anyone listening out there who wants to hear your book, uh, remind us again the title. And then also for anyone who maybe knows a uh, father who has a child with special needs who could either be a mentor or a mentee in your program, how could they reach out to you and get connected? The title of the book is 21st Century Dads, A Father's Journey to Break the Cycle of Father Absence. And the website for the charity is 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Awesome. They can go on there and, and uh, say, hey, I'm happy to mentor someone or, you know what, I'd like to be introduced to someone who's been through similar experience. Absolutely. Cool. Hey, thanks for coming. And uh, again, thanks for being here. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity to share. I love your heart. I love what you're doing. Um, God bless you, your wife, and those uh, six Bambinos of yours. (laughs) Thanks very much. Have a good one. You too. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please send me a note on LinkedIn. It makes me smile every time. And I also want to say that your constructive criticism is strongly encouraged. If notes aren't your thing, it'd be great to have you subscribe, share the show with a friend, or write a review of the show in your podcasting platform so that awesome strangers who don't know either of us can be more likely to find the show. Thanks again, and I hope you have a great day.